1: everyone and welcome to the health hub i'm kathy Biasa, your host and along with our producer alex diaz we would like to welcome you to our show this morning good morning alex how are you good morning kathy uh, i do apologize for my raspiness right now but uh thanks to you i was at the leaf game last oh, night was uh, a good game. thank you so much for the tickets oh, i really appreciate it uh, our, our pleasure we're, we're down to see the raptors tonight Yeah, so that's going to be exciting It will be, they get their rings and the banner is being raised And uh, we're on to season 2 of the Raptors being champs Exactly, it's it's
0: looking like a fun year
1: It is, it is, big uh, night in sports tonight actually, right? We've got the Raptors, I think the Leafs are playing First game of the World Series, so yeah. um, channel channel surfing Channel surfing is uh, definitely the name of the game today Great time to be a sports fan For sure Uh, Today's show is live. You can call in. Our number is 416-245-1534. But please do follow us as well on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. We always put up some interesting, fun stuff on there, as well as uh, you being able to keep track of our upcoming shows and wonderful guests. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca should you have any questions, concerns, if you want uh, More details on a show or contact information, uh, we are happy to supply that for you. And also uh, continue to send in requests for shows. Uh, We do our best to try and fill them and to try and get um, experts on the topics to you on the show. And also, please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find all of our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. And you can also find them on my website, which is kathybiase.com. Last week's show with Dr. Mansour Muhammad about hormone therapy will be up shortly for you to listen to. Oh, excuse me we had dr Mansur and this is his second time and um an hour just is not enough time to get all the information in that he has to to give us it was just a, a great great show so uh, we will have that up for you shortly right alex i think yes yeah. we will okay um october we're halfway oh i guess we're more than halfway through october yeah. next week is halloween um, October is Breast Cancer Awareness, awareness Month, uh, something that is very near and dear to my heart as I am a breast cancer survivor um, and doing my part to help bring awareness to the cause. Uh, just some facts and uh, a little bit of information for you that you can use, uh, hopefully to set you on a path of prevention <clears throat> Excuse me, breast cancer is the most common cancer among Canadian women, excluding non-melanoma skin cancers. Breast cancer can also occur in men, uh, absolutely, but is not uh, is not nearly as common, of course, as it is in women. Uh, From the Canadian Cancer Society site, I think this is, yeah, the Canadian Cancer Society site, I have some statistics to share with you. It's estimated that in 2019, 26,900 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. This represents a quarter, 25% of all new cancers in women in 2019. On average, 74 Canadian women will be diagnosed with breast cancer every day. You know, it just to me, that number is um, mind boggling. I'm sorry. Can
0: you repeat that in the last figure, please?
1: On average, 74 Canadian women will be diagnosed with breast cancer every day. Yeah. Every day. Research shows that lifestyle changes can decrease the risk of breast cancer. Research also shows that many, many cancers are not genetic. What this means is that um, we can't blame our genes on um, many of the, the cancer cases that occur, and that we can actually—and this is, you know, this this is a good thing in in many ways because this does mean that we can take actionable steps in our lifestyle and yep. in the choices that we make to help uh, prevent cancer. Yes, that's a very good point. It is, you know, and it's not just breast cancer. I know today I'm focusing on breast cancer, but this is applicable to all cancers. We can take actionable steps. Uh, Prevention is is such a a big, big, big piece of, of our health picture, something that I do try and get out to as many people as possible. Unfortunately, a lot of times we don't uh, think about our lifestyle and our diet and exercise and so forth until we are face-to-face with uh, an illness, Um, but do know that uh, we can take steps, and I'll list some of them here for you. Uh, Don't smoke. Okay, Evidence suggests a very strong link between smoking and breast cancer, particularly in premenopausal women, (coughs) um, and limiting alcohol. The more alcohol you drink, the greater your risk of developing breast cancer. Generally, uh, the recommendation based on the research and the effect of alcohol on breast cancer is to limit yourself to less than one drink a day. Uh, And this is for women. So we are focusing here on women because the the majority of breast cancer uh, is in women. Controlling your weight. Uh, again, this comes back very, very often in, in all uh, arenas of healthcare. But being overweight or obese increases the risk of breast cancer. Again, especially true uh, after menopause for women. Uh, excess weight uh, does many things to our health, increasing inflammation, and inflammation is a hallmark of uh, many diseases. So keeping your weight. Um, to a a good level is, uh, very, very important for you. And, uh, to help do this is being physically active. Uh, physical activity helps of course to maintain weight and prevents breast cancer. Um, Many things associated with exercise. We will be talking about uh, exercise and the microbiome today. That is our topic. So again, another avenue that exercise plays a role in our health, uh, helps to decrease inflammation, helps to increase insulin sensitivity, all things that are very, very important for prevention of breast cancer. Um, Research says aim for at least 150 minutes uh, a week of moderate aerobic activity or 75 minutes a week of vigorous aerobic activity also included there um, is doing some strength training so as uh, we get older our bones get um, a little bit more uh, weak shall we say Uh, weight training does help to increase the health of our bones Breastfeeding uh, may play a role in breast cancer prevention. So, if you um, are a new mom or are a mom to be, do you know that breastfeeding has been shown to be uh, a way of breast cancer prevention and uh, limiting the dose and duration of hormone therapy? So, I hearken back to our show, which we will have up shortly about hormone therapy. Uh, please do take a listen to that. So. Um, Just a few things to to help you out there. Again, diet is exceptionally important. A whole foods anti-inflammatory diet that will help supply your body with the nutrients that it needs, strengthen the immune system, and help to fight cancer. And uh, take into consideration, again, the environmental toxins that we are faced with and limiting uh, radiation exposure. Um, More studies are needed, but some research suggests a link between breast cancer and cumulative exposure to radiation over your lifetime. Um, so only having tests when absolutely necessary. Um, and that, that's just a few things, but very, very actionable steps that we can take uh, in our lives to help prevent breast cancer. On to our show today, we will be talking about the impact of exercise on intestinal health with Dr. Sarah Campbell. Dr. Campbell is an associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health. She received her BS and MS from Bloomberg University in Pennsylvania and PhD from Florida State University. Following her PhD, she completed a three-year postdoctoral fellowship supported by the USDA. Currently, the Campbell Research... Excuse me one second... (coughs) My apologies, I'm going to have to get a sip of water. Currently, the Campbell Research focuses on two lines of inquiry related to exercise and the intestine. The first includes how exercise impacts the gut microbiome. The microbiome is an expanding area of research focused on how high-fat diets alter the gut microbiome and how this impacts systematic health. Their second line of inquiry is focused on providing an understanding of how changes in the microbiome impact intestinal health and ultimately disease state. So just uh, you a know, quick harken back to what we just talked about. So our learning points today, what is research telling us about the effects of high-fat diet on the microbiome? How does exercise modify gut microbes? And what type of exercise have the best benefit on the gut microbes? And when we get back, we will be talking to Dr. Sarah Campbell.
0: Another heartbreak day Feels like you're miles away Don't even need no shade When your sun don't shine Shine Too many passing dreams Roll by like seeds It's hard to keep believing When it pass you by And by I know your heart been broke again I know your prayers ain't been answered yet I know you're feeling like you got nothing left Well lift your head It ain't over yet, it ain't over yet So Keep moving on Move Keep walking Until the morning comes move, Keep walking Soldier Keep moving on And lift your head It ain't over yet ain't over yet Echoing inside your head Otherwise the words that your sweet mama said Shoot for the moon, my dear So you two came out of this atmosphere Between high stage and pump fates. You're feeling like you can't vibrate I can hold your hand But I can't turn your eyes to free finish yet. Hold on, hold on. He'll get you through this. Hold on, hold on. These are the promises I never will forget. I never will forget. So hold on, hold on. The Lord ain't finished yet. Hold on, hold on. He'll get you through this. Hold These are the promises I never will forget. I never will forget. I know your heart been broke again. I know your prayers ain't been answered yet. But it ain't over yet. It ain't over yet. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome
1: back, everybody, to our show. I've got my water in tow, so I should be good. Our number is 416-245-1534. If you would like to call in and speak with Dr. Campbell, please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC. Good morning, Dr. Campbell. How are you today?
2: Hi, good morning. How are you all?
1: Very well. Thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, having amazing guests on our show. So thank you for taking the time to enlighten enlighten us on this great topic, Um, something that I, I love to follow for sure. I'm a a huge, uh, a huge studier of the microbiome.
2: Um, great. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a, it's such a pleasure.
1: Oh, it's always great to have. You know, you you guys are the front line, the scientists researching this stuff, and uh, it takes a long time to to make its way into the mainstream, doesn't it? These studies.
2: It does. It it oftentimes these studies take a, a long time to complete in general as well. So you know you have to kind of wait for us to complete those long research projects and then analyze all of that data, then get it out, and then from that point it can be disseminated to the public. So oftentimes it is quite some time b- between when it's being done and when it gets disseminated.
1: Mm-hmm. And the, this topic to me was it really caught my eye. Maybe you can give us um, sort of a a Grand sort of overview of what this particular study is on and why you, um, maybe why you delved into this topic and, and if you were surprised at the results that you found.
2: Um, so, yeah, so we, um, I, as you mentioned, I did my PhD and in, in postdoc in, in Florida and I really focused actually a lot on cholesterol metabolism and inflammation. So inflammation's kind of been an interesting area. And then when I got to Rutgers, I was, really looking for something new to um, get into research. And so I started reading some papers on on obesity and then um, got me thinking about gut. And, of course, at at the time in 2010 when I put obesity and gut into PubMed – all of the research that had been out there on obesity and the microbiome started showing up. And I started looking into that and I was like, this is so exciting. And so naturally the next question is, okay, diet is one aspect, as you mentioned earlier in terms of lifestyle, but exercise is another huge component that really can't be forgotten about. So I really then put exercise and, and microbiota and gut into the um, PubMed search and I was like uh, shocked when there were zero (laughs) results that came back. So I was like, okay, I guess this is an area that needs to be looked into. So that's really how we started looking at the impact of exercise on the microbiota and You know, shame on me, early we kind of defaulted to male mice just because there's a lot of times less to think about. Um, Now we've fully integrated uh, looking at females into our um, research milieu, and that's really how
1: it all started. Interesting. Now, uh, for me included and people that are listening, how can we translate mice studies into human information and make that applicable to humans?
2: Right. So the um, the great thing is actually a colleague of mine who does do um, intestine as well with exercise had gotten into the microbiome as well and actually did some translational studies. So looked at humans and found some very similar things to what we found in our in our mouse model. So that really reassures us that we're looking at an appropriate model. But the best thing to do is to you know, ensure that that researcher is using an appropriate model that really does mimic human um, condition. So certain animals are really much better for looking at um, human diseases. You mentioned earlier um, bones potentially becoming more frail and how exercise can help with that. And so I looked at, for example, cholesterol in postmenopausal women, and we use both humans and an animal model. And believe it or not, a golden Syrian hamster is the best animal model for postmenopausal women. So you really have to do your research before you even do your research to ensure that you're using an appropriate animal model, which allows those results to be translatable to the human aspect.
1: So is the gut microbiome of a mouse similar in makeup to the gut microbiome of a human?
2: Right. So that's a great question. So in terms of um, general microbial composition, there is a large similarity between, you know, mice and humans. Um, The one thing you have to start looking at is when you get to lower levels of taxonomy, for example. So, um, you know, science class, kingdom, phyla, family, genus, species, you know, all of those kind of Mm -hmm. things. So the lower you get species and strain tend to be more specific to, um, you know, the the animal. In fact, humans actually really only have about a third of microbes in common, whereas two-thirds of them are really unique to each individual, which makes you know, research sometimes really difficult because, you know, think about some of the differences, you know, a mouse, you kind of feed them the same kind of thing every day so that food is constantly exposed to the microbes. So it might be a little more stable, whereas humans, for example, have a very diverse diet. Now, we know certain things that are better to eat than not in terms of microbes, but that kind of really um, might alter which microbes become active depending on, on what you eat. So there, is, there are some similarities, and we've noted, particularly with exercise, that exercise tends to change certain microbes that we know are similar in both animals and humans. Um, that's even seen sometimes in the, the diet studies. Um, but there are going to be inherent differences that, you know, you have to be aware of.
1: So, sorry, <clears throat> just to backtrack, you say sure. a third of the microbiome is in common with, sort of, with the mice species, two-thirds is unique to human. So no, so humans,
2: one-third is about common throughout humans in general. We have certain, you know, microbes that you will see in in all people. But two-thirds are unique to that individual, which is why I think there's an explosion of people in, you know, as as the Human Microbiome Project and all of these projects were getting underway and trying to investigate you know, how to determine what works best since there's that big variation between individuals and, and what would be the the best way to recommend how to alter a microbiome, right, if, if yeah. two-thirds of it is different. Um, well, so, that, you know, that's a big challenge to think about research-wise.
1: Well, and that, you know, just to go a little bit off topic, but I promise I'll bring it back on, sure. you know, when we're dealing with strains and probiotics and so forth, right. you know, I I'm assuming that you know once different strains can do the same thing in different human beings so just because a particular strain does one thing in one human doesn't mean that it's not being done in another human if they don't have the same strain so there's 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 got to be cross referencing of different strains doing the exact same thing and so then how do you buy a probiotic for instance with only 25 strains
2: right so, yes. So that's one of the things that has been an, an interesting question that I often get is, you know, do, are you a big probiotic fan or prebiotics? You know, probiotics, as you just suggested, are really you're taking or ingesting microbes. Right? essentially prebiotics would be formulating your diet so that that food then feeds the microbes right so it's the difference between eating foods that your microbes can use or eating microbes right through the probiotic and most you know research um, in probiotics is still a little bit in its infancy and in, in fact NIH um, here in the States has issued research agendas looking at the mechanisms of probiotics because people aren't really sure how or why they work. Um, but prebiotics have been researched quite a bit, and they do show very robust changes in good ways to the microbiota. So I'm, I based on the evidence. I would be more suggested to somebody to formulate the diet in a way that feeds those good microbes rather than eating a pro a probiotic pill, for example, where you have microbes, right? Cause there's what a 10 to the 12 in terms of the abundance of microbes in your gut. So taking 25 strains, you know, what is the, ch- what are the chances that how they're going to react with your community structure in your gut and and so on and so forth. So that's, something to think about when you look at into taking a probiotic
1: it is something to think about and you know there's a new um technology coming out called symbiotics where they have yeah. the prebiotic and the probiotic yes. mixed yeah um within the diet sphere uh can you go over what prebiotics would be
2: Sure. Prebiotics would, as really as simply as it sounds, are foods that the um, human intestine, for example, in terms of small intestine, um, aren't really able to digest and or absorb. So they require the microbes and the activity of those microbes to break them down into their smaller components. And then that provides fuel for those microbes. So, for example, um, complex carbohydrates in the forms of fiber are really what you think of in terms of a prebiotic. So complex carbohydrates, we know those, you know, starchy, fibrous types of, of foods aren't broken down in the small intestine, but they are metabolized into short chain fatty acids by our gut microbes. And those short-chain fatty acids then provide a healthy environment for the microbes to live and thrive and work in conjunction with the intestine to kind of manifest a a happy, healthy gut.
1: Can we generally, you know, there are a lot of studies, there are studies on particular foods, you know, Jerusalem, artichokes, things. But can we translate it into all fiber
2: so right, so fibers are are different, right? So so there are soluble versus insoluble fibers, um, and so that would be um, a big deal to look at. Um, and uh, one fiber in particular, right, um, are things like oat, oatmeal, legumes. Insoluble fiber are the types that don't necessarily. Um, dissolve in water and pass through the intestine, right? So those soluble fibers are what's going to um, be or provide that food and nutrients to the gut. That's what's accessible to our microbiome.
1: The soluble. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Um, Before we go to break uh, so that we can set up the second half of our show, what did your research tell you about exercise and how it modifies the gut microbiome?
2: Absolutely. And what's really neat is the results are fairly consistent now coming out with exercise and that exercise tends to diversify the microbes, which means, um, you know, not necessarily that there are are more of them, but that um, they're more varieties, right? Diversity is the spice of life, as, as some people say. Um, that, that seems to be a common theme, although it's not necessary um, that diversity changes. To have a healthy gut microbiome, it typically comes down to, especially what was seen with exercise, is how that changes particular microbes that ferment these complex carbohydrates and in particular ones that tend to produce butyrate. Butyrate tends to make a healthy colon. And so exercise is known to increase the production of butyrate microbes as well as butyrate concentrations within the gut which make the gut more acidic and that acidic environment actually will suppress the pathogenic bacteria that would make you sick.
1: Excellent. Okay. I have a question here for you then. There are actually two questions. Hopefully I can get to them just before the break. Why is diversity important?
2: So, so diversity, like I said, isn't, isn't important. It's shown in some studies, but not in all studies. So diversity, is thought to be important because it means that you have differences or different microbes as opposed to a whole bunch of microbes but similar ones, right? So if we eat lots of different types of foods or are exposed to lots of different types of things, diverse microbes mean that you have a microbe for a a particular function or a particular type of food or a particular type of something that you're exposed to. So particularly in the diet and obesity literature, um, obesity and diabetes are usually associated with a less diverse bacterial composition in the gut. So that more diverse bacteria help to keep that individual healthy and obesity and diabetes um, down, for lack of a better word
1: can do more things. More diversity does more things. Sorry, Alex, I want to ask one question because it's right on topic here. Um, Okay, so have we come away then from the research that um, I sort of was brought up on that we are born and our gut sort of matures by the age of two and the rest of our lives we're left feeding what we've cultivated up to the age of two? Uh, I'll backtrack it. Are we able to create more diversity? Whereas before, you know, my understanding was you have this sort of fingerprint and you do the best with what you can. You know, the kids that are born C-section have a different microbiome. But are you saying now that uh, no matter what our age, we can acquire more diversity within our microbiome? We're not fixed at two?
2: Right. So, (laughs) So that's kind of a loaded question because part of the answer is we are still under the impression, and I haven't seen any literature to suggest that you don't kind of develop your microbiota by two or three. However, like anything else, so if you think about exercise, you mentioned insulin sensitivity is changed with exercise, right? Mm -hmm. That takes time. And if you stop exercise, that adaptation is lost right? So if you continue to exercise and you continue to eat a healthy diet, that diversification or that healthy microbiome will persist. But if you stop doing those healthy lifestyles, you kind of will reverse back to what your baseline is. But I I feel that that's kind of true for anything, even with probiotics, for example, those individuals will only change those communities as long as they're on the probiotic. Once they stop, it will reverse back to their kind of like fingerprint. Mm -hmm. I think, as you mentioned earlier, though, you know, with the cancer, you know, most of it's not genetic, you know, there are other factors. And I think the microbiome is a little bit similar, right? You have potentially this microbiota, but we are becoming aware of ways that we can change that microbiota to enhance health. And so as long as we're engaging in those activities, we can enhance health through the microbiome.
1: So more fortify what we have.
2: Yep. And I mean, like you can, you do, you can change it. So exercise does increase the abundance of those uh, bacteria that produce butyrate. That is compared to Mm -hmm. someone, you know, or, you know, a mouse or animal that remains sedentary.
1: Right. Excellent. It's
2: just that chronic exposure.
1: Excellent. Okay, we're going to end there quickly. We're going to go to break and we get back, we're going to start talking about different things. One topic of real interest to me is high fat diets. So we'll be back in a minute.
2: Okay, great.
0: Watching people drive by T-Mac on the radio Got so much on your mind Nothing's really going right Looking for a ray of hope To the Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking about the impact of exercise
1: on intestinal health with Dr. Sarah Campbell, a topic that I love to discuss. And uh, thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Campbell. As I I said before, it's great to have have you on the show. The conversation is, for me, it's just uh, enlightening.
2: Well, wow, thank you for having me. And I love gut health, too. So, you know, this makes a perfect conversation. And it's,
1: you know, it's just such an on-point topic in health now, isn't it? It's just so many studies out there, and um, it's being related to so many different things. So it's, it it's so important. Um, you know what we didn't do uh, for people right off the top is give an explanation of what um, the gut microbiome is.
2: Sure. Sure. Um, so the gut microbiome is basically um, the microbes um, that are in your intestine, and the really like the genetic potential that's associated with those. So there's microbiome um, versus the microbiota. so they're kind of used, um, I guess, somewhat interchangeably, but they are different. You know, again, microbiome is those genomes. Microbiota is the actual organism. So bacteria, viruses, fungi. So that's the slight difference. One is related to genetic potential and one is just simply what's there.
1: Wow. Didn't know that at all. I use those interchangeably myself.
2: Yes, yeah. And sometimes, you know, I hate to admit, but I do too, just depending on, you know, what where your stream of consciousness is sometimes going mm-hmm. when, when you're talking. Um, we're obviously much more particular how we mention it when we write our papers, and so that should probably be something I really make a mental note to fix. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, again, we were talking about diversity, but, you know, people may still have this idea that bacteria, fungus, uh, are, are not good things. So just quickly, um, as a refresher for people listening, why is it important to cultivate a healthy microbiome?
2: Right, so... The microbiome, in, in most ways, or microbiota, those, those microbes really work in symbiosis with you, right? Their job is really to help facilitate the way you function and your health. And as you just mentioned, those uh, microbes are now being linked to many, many um, um, disease states now. And I think one of the biggest reasons is because they're such a large component of the immune system in your intestine, which can affect so many systems. Um, So I think that is one of the biggest reasons is to keep that balance where you're in the symbiosis. Because the minute you start fluctuating this balance towards what we call um, dysbiosis or kind of a dysregulated gut microbiota, that's when you tend to see manifestations of these inflammatory diseases. So, keeping that healthy or that gut healthy helps to um, keep not only in the intestine healthy, but it won't overactivate that immune system, then that might cause a systemic, you know, manifestation of inflammation or disease state.
1: And, and to, again, be clear, we have all these things, uh, all these microorganisms within us. And is it incorrect to say that some are good and some are bad? Or when we talk about the collective, is it more on point to say that in the right proportion, everything has a job?
2: I would, yes. Yeah, there are, um, there are jobs that they all set out to perform, there, you know, are some. Let's, you know, be honest. Known to be pathogenic. One in particular that uh, comes up frequently that many are tested for when they have things like inflammatory bowel diseases, like H. pylori, a Helicobacter tends to have the connotation of like, oop, that's a bad one, right? And so the lactobacillus and the bifidobacterium, since they're always associated with probiotics, for the most part, tend to be thought of as the good ones. Although when you tend to start reading and sifting through all this microbiota literature, you know, you start to see that these various microbes can be associated with disease states and or not disease states. So I would agree that it really depends on how they interact with your body type and how that they interact with each other. And, and so that's really kind of what, what ultimately dictates that health. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're not always going to be all good and they're not always going to be all bad. It's definitely that balance.
1: Okay. Um, So we talked about uh, fiber and the importance of fiber Mm -hmm. in the diet. You've also uh, done some research with uh, high fat diets or fat diets. And what Mm -hmm. has your research told us about that type of a diet?
2: Right. So we really use high fat diets because we know it induces inflammation. So that's that's really the major reason to do that, and then a lot of times we we try and see how exercise can mediate that inflammatory response. So the research is pretty clear that um, high fat diets will induce inflammation. It they do um, those type of diets do tend to um, kind of fluctuate that microbiota to where you see more of the activity of the bad or pathogenic bacteria and less activity of the good bacteria or less abundance, I should say. Um, So we know that all of those things happen with a high-fat diet. Um, There's less diversity of the microbes, as we mentioned earlier, and um, it's typically associated um, with what we call the leaky gut so the, the inflammation tends to not just stay contained within the intestine. It leaks out from the intestine and then creates this low inflammation um, milieu within your body. So, yeah, the high-fat diets don't really have the best terms of, of positive outcomes. Now, to caveat that, we use high-fat diets, and most of the research with high-fat diets that tend to be bad are more the saturated fats. So those diets that are higher in mono and polyunsaturated fats, the Mediterranean diet is a really good example of that, tend to not fluctuate um, the microbiome to the bad side. It tends to stay um, within the good, healthy side. So fat type does matter.
1: Okay, but the Mediterranean diet does not um, weigh heavily on the fats. It incorporates the, those fats into the diet. but. right. What about um, the diets out there, like the ketogenic diet? I don't know if you've done any research specifically on that, um, which incorporates, uh, you know, a a broad range. It's not just saturated fats. Has there been direct um, uh, research on that and the impact on the gut that you know of?
2: Not that I've seen. And I haven't searched that, you know, per se, recently. Um, but not that I have really seen. Um, I know that, you know, just from the diet, die, um, I'm sorry, dietary fiber studies that diets that are going to be devoid in that fiber are going to be less advantageous for intestines. Right. So, you know, if you could hypothesize you know, something that's high fat, high protein, and devoid of that dietary fiber that tends to create an enriched microbiota and a healthy, you know, colon, you know, you can
1: draw your conclusions. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) But I don't know that there's been a lot of direct, you know, research out there. Um, But like I said, we know fiber is good. And we've seen fiber devoid diets being um, pro-inflammatory for intestine and, and, and microbiota. So
1: Okay. Now, uh, back to the exercise component of your study. What type of exercise um, translates into benefits for humans?
2: Right. So that's a great question. And, and the, the human work that's looked at this has mostly focused on aerobic exercise. So those kind of like jogs, bike rides, long walks, and, and so forth. Um, there are now studies being being done. I'm, I'm actually in the process of talking to some collaborators now looking at things like um, high-intensity interval training, which is really popular, and resistance training because we need to understand how these various um, exercises do affect the microbiota, not just aerobic exercise. But to date, it's mostly been aerobic exercise and that it's beneficial for the, the microbiome.
1: And how long does it take... Um to translate from starting your exercise routine into um, seeing the benefits on the microbiome?
2: Right. That's a great question. I actually have two students right now finishing up that study. We did a time course to see how quickly the microbiome changed in response to exercise. So I can call you back and let you know when we find out. (laughs) It's an important question,
1: I think, (laughs) because... uh,
2: it is an ultimately, yes, an important question. I have a colleague who looks at um, foods, so polyphenol foods, and she's noted that she can start to start to see changes within the first couple of days. But then, you know, the big thing is, you know, is that just initial changes? When do we see kind of more permanent changes? At what point? And how long does that last? And so those are the types of questions we are asking with that study.
1: Do you yet have a workout schedule um, that you can share with us? Um, so
2: I'm sorry, I missed the first part about is there a workout schedule? Do you that have I like a share? workout
1: schedule that will translate? So if people are saying, you know, let's get started on this now. What's your suggestion? I know you can't tell us maybe the parameters of when things will change, but how to right. change them.
2: Right, so like I said, to date it's mostly aerobic based exercise, so getting out for um, longer distance so those are time frames. so as you suggested earlier, the minimum amount of physical activity is fifty minutes or I'm sorry thirty minutes um, five times uh, a week, right? that one hundred and fifty minutes. so that's a definitely a good place to start. The idea would be then to really build upon that uh, duration of exercise. So the longer the duration, you know, building up to between 30 and 60 minutes most days of the week is a good place to start as as that's how most of the animal and some of the human research has, has translated and, and recommended.
1: And getting the heart rate up.
2: Yes. Okay. Yes. So heart rates are, you know, calculated a lot of times a, a very basic is, you know, two to you know, essentially 220 minus your age to give you a rough estimate of maximal heart rate, and then multiply that by certain zones, you want to get into the moderate exercise zone. So you're, you know, looking at 60 or 65% of
1: of that. Okay. Um, now you've talked about butyrate, and that is one of the more common um, of the three of the short chain fatty acids that I guess have been researched. Um I know of two others, which are the acid, acetate and propionate. First of all, are there more short chain fatty acids than those three? And second part of that question, have has there been any research done in the benefits of um, the other two short chain fatty acids?
2: Right. So, great question. So there are there are acetate, butyrate, propionate. Um, valeric, isovaleric, and isobutyric acids that we look at when we get short chain fatty acid profiles from our studies. Um, others absolutely have been looked at, and I want to say it's almost to kind of the theme of what we've been talking about. Some studies in certain environments suggest you know, that acetate and uh, propionate can be negatively impacted with health. Um, Most other studies, exercise-related studies, suggest that propionate is another um, very important short-chain fatty acid for gut health when you exercise. Um, Acetate, gosh, acetate is kind of a... um, a tough one. Mm -hmm. There's some literature out there that suggests that acetate in in high concentrations tends to um, be uh, not so beneficial when it comes to that pro-inflammatory state that you see in obesity and diabetes. Um, Others suggest that acetate is a natural part of the milieu and there has to be some sort of, of balance. And when it gets, you know, out of whack in either direction. It has health-related complications. Um, I'd say they're a little more complicated than, mm-hmm. than butyrate, that's for sure. But I think it's, again, how that balances between the three, because those are the three main ones that, that most people look at, um, that really will dictate that that health in in the gut.
1: And this may be an obvious statement or question, but sure. the different different types of bacteria make different types of short-chain fatty acid. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, as we come to the end and this has been a, such an informative I, I again, I love the topic. What to you are some important questions that still need to be answered within your dynamic, within your uh, specialty area?
2: Sure. Um so some of the biggest questions are I I would say not only just in my specialty area, but I think in the microbiome microbiota field in general is we can get at which microbes are present, but that doesn't exactly tell us all the time, which ones are active right? So just because they're there, does that mean they're highly abundant because they're very active? Or could it be that a lesser abundant microbe is important because its activity level is higher? And not only is it what's it doing in terms of is the activity higher, but what exactly is that microbe doing? Is it taking up fatty acids? Is it taking up um, carbohydrate sources? Does it metabolize proteins? Is it a sulfur reducer, right? So it's not just enough to know what microbes are there, but we want to know how they're acting and what they're secreting and how they're communicating with each other. And that is the big question that will really help us find a microbiome-based therapy because that will tell us then how it communicates with the rest of the body to either make it healthy or unhealthy. And that, to me, is really the biggest, probably most difficult and take my entire career to figure that out. But I think that that's the biggest really question to start answering is what are those microbes actually doing and how then is, is it related to health? Because we have all of these associations now, right? The microbiome is implicated in all of these things. But I think it's still an implication, not an not you know a direct causative effect
1: and interesting we actually didn't touch on it, but the microbiome uh, is is you know an, an immune um modulator, but mm-hmm. it also does things like transforming nutrients correct into our body in our body so that we're we can use them more beneficially from plants and different things um is that the case are we are we still trying to find out even more and more about how they're sort of changing our our inner environment
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And so, you know, those plants, those, you know, starchy type of fibers are what we're talking about in terms of, you know, breaking down those complex carbohydrates, creating the short chain fatty acids. And I think the roles of all of those in systemic health are still being, you know, figured out.
1: Yeah. And again, the, the association with plant-based diets and right. the phytonutrients that are beneficial. It's just, mm-hmm. it's a, such an interesting topic. Um, Dr. Campbell, thank you so much and uh, for being on the show. And I absolutely would love to have you back on when um, you've completed this research. I love a platform here for you to discuss what you have found. I think it's important for people to um, be equipped with questions and knowledge. I think it's just very important for health. So thank you for all that you're doing. And thank you for being on our show today.
2: Well, I appreciate it so much, and I'm absolutely happy to come back. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it.
1: Wonderful. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.